Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What is up, Mets Up listeners? Back here for episode number 79 of the Mets Up podcast. And I'm so excited to bring you guys this episode because we actually have New York Mets baseball to talk about. We got a couple spring training games. We got a couple little tidbits on the pitching side, on the hitting side, a lot of things to catch up on here. So, of course, make sure you guys stick around, listen, watch us on YouTube. Just look up Mets Up podcast. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find us. Drop, a, drop us a five star rating, drop us a review, as well as follow us on Twitter. Instagram. Instagram at MetStup. You'll be able to get all the content you guys need on all those platforms. And without further ado, let's bring in James for a quick intro here because I'm just so excited to actually talk about real baseball for what feels like the first time in years. Dude, me too, man. It's been a very long time since we've talked to you listeners out there. A lot has happened. Mets played three actual baseball games, like three real ones and one fake one. One fake one. And like the notes page is filled with like Tyler McGill tidbits. Dom Smith tidbits. This is stuff that we haven't been able to talk about in so long. It's so nice that we have spring training back in real baseball. That first peruse on the baseball savant game day board and looking at the whiffs and the pitch velocity and the exit velocities, it like just sent a, a shiver down my spine. I was tickled fancy. Do I find myself looking at probable starters down the line for oh, who's pitching today against the Marlins? Oh, Scherzer? Oh, okay, awesome. Like I, Looking at probable starters, looking at box scores, like you said, the baseball savant stats, highlights, highlights on Twitter, clips. It's it's an incredible time to be a baseball fan, something I, I didn't think we were really going to get at any point this year for a bit. No, we're shockingly, what, 18 days right now from opening day? Yeah, just a little over two weeks. April 7th, of course, opening day against the Washington Nationals, and the Mets are starting to ramp up, and we got a lot of different narratives and stories and scenarios going on in Mets camp right now, and I feel like we should start off on the pitching side, since the pitching side just so happy. We got a lot of good things to talk about there, and it really starts with Tyler McGill. Yeah, I do want to start pitching because that is where, as we like to say in this podcast, the juice is coming from because Tyler McGill came juice heavy on Sunday afternoon. He was gassing up his fastball up to 96, 97 miles an hour. He averaged it up there. After last year, he only averaged 94 and a half, which is, I've been saying it for months, that Tyler McGill in this abbreviated role, like he did in the spring start, only a few innings at a time, rather than the full starters workload five or six, could turn his fastball into an incredibly whiffable pitch and take him to a new level, and it did that. He had five whiffs on 12 swings, and that was against most of the St. Louis Cardinal starters. He faced Goldschmidt, he faced Edmund, he faced Arenado, he faced Tyler O'Neill. Like, this was a real lineup he faced, and he kind of diced them up. Yeah, McGill looked really, really sharp. Like, first outing of the spring, of course, with this weird season, too, at the lockout, you didn't expect guys to really come out as sharp as they would be around this time of the year. But Tyler McGill took no breaks. He took no rest, and he was just firing from the beginning. I mean, I think his like first fastball came out around like 95, 96. I was like, oh, he's feeling himself right now. Yeah, his fast, first fastball actually did come in 97 miles an hour. He peaked right about that line. So the fact that he sat there at that same 97 mark for all three innings that he pitched, this guy could be the limit for him in one of these weird like cleanup swingman roles. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe you want to explain a little bit more just because it's probably been a few episodes since we really talked about what the plan for Tyler McGill should be at the start of the year. But essentially what we're thinking with Tyler McGill is that he's the depth starter right now in case of any sort of injuries or something that goes on regular snafus during the season. But there's a way that we can use him and utilize him to that best of the ability. It's like the three-inning swingman role. Definitely. This is something that the Rays did last year with Drew Rasmussen, someone I've compared Tyler McGill to a lot because Rasmussen got traded to the Rays from the Brewers and had an electric fastball that came in the upper 90s and a very good slider and not much else behind that. Also tinkers with a changeup like Tyler McGill did. And that changeup did look good for McGill on Sunday. But very slowly, the Rays threw him in for an inning, then for two innings, then for three innings and four innings. And by the end of the year, he was an accomplished starter pitching between five and seven innings per outing. And he was Pitching against the vaunted offenses, the AL East doing a great job. I think the Mets can do something like that with McGill. And it kind of fits the rest of this pitching staff well, that he can be a little bit of like an oddball workload-wise. He can if come in for a day, maybe Taiwan's getting hit hard in the first inning. Or maybe Taiwan is ramped up slowly because he is dealing with a little bit of a nagging injury right now. You bring Taiwan in for three, you bring McGill in for three, and suddenly you just have a six-inning start. You can hand it off to the great back into the bullpen. Carlos Carrasco doesn't have it in the first inning. Bang. You bring McGill in. You want to maybe keep Jacob deGrom to between 70 and 80 pitches for the month of April. Bang, you bring McGill in. You pick two times a week for McGill to give you about 60 pitches at a time, and you're looking at a certified weapon. No, McGill in that role is going to fit perfectly. And like you said, it doesn't mean that he won't be a starter later on. It doesn't mean that we don't see this guy as a starter down the line. But for what the Mets need, and especially, you guys are going to see this, like when the season starts, you're not going to be getting these complete games. We don't see that to begin with in baseball anyway. But especially with this very abbreviated spring after the weird lockout offseason, pitchers are not going to be able to go as deep into games. You're going to see a lot more bullpens being used a lot more that wasn't good English but you're just going to see them being used essentially like at a higher interval just because the starters are not going to be able to be used as much they're not going to be able to throw as many pitches the season's going to feel like it came on very quickly for these guys so having a guy like McGill who not only is going to be good out of the bullpen but can give you multiple innings probably like you said maybe once or twice a week that's going to be a huge huge strength for the Mets especially when you have guys like you mentioned like Walker and Carrasco who probably aren't going to go five their first few starts and it's also especially important for McGill, I'll say it again, because he relies on his four-seam fastball. We saw it very much last year, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't, because hitters can sit. They know it's coming. For him to be able to crank that fastball up a few miles an hour and have it sit between 96 and 97 miles an hour, and I'm even assuming, since this was his first start of the spring, that we're going to get that a little bit more once the adrenaline's going in the regular season. He's had a full month to ramp up. So you're looking at a guy who could be sitting between 97 and 98 miles an hour. That's going to be a much more whiffable pitch. Like That's going to become a pitch that is basically an out pitch for Tyler McGill, especially as he continues to develop his changeup. Between that fastball and that slider, you're looking at a guy who's going to be playing almost above his skill in this abbreviated role, and especially an organization like the Mets who really are buying into analytics. You're going to probably see some creativity with the, the workloads of the pitchers and the style which they're employed deployed and I think that Tyler McGill is going to be a big beneficiary of it yeah no he's going to be a little bit of a secret weapon I feel like like of course there's no secrets in major league baseball but a guy like McGill who when he comes in is going to come in in that role that we've been talking about here for the last few minutes it's going to catch teams a little bit off guard too because there's not too many pitchers like Carlos Carrasco and Tywan Walker who are realistically the guys he's going to fill in for in these roles they don't pitch like Tyler or McGill. He gives you a completely different look, too. So if you can get that for one time through the lineup, that's going to disrupt a team's whole flow. Definitely. I mean, he's aggressive. He's not afraid of anybody in Major League Baseball. He's going to come at you again with heat, with velocity, fastballs, pound, pound, pound. Get that extra miles an hour. It's hard to catch up. And that's going to be, he's, he's kind of like throwing an elite reliever for multiple innings. 
it's it's really good because this is something that me and you have spoke about off air, off of the Mets Up podcast. Something that we love that the Rays do is just get the most out of it. And you mentioned Drew Rasmussen. You even look at the Brewers, who I know Josh Hader's a little bit different, but they'll use him two innings at a time. Or even a guy, Devin Williams, they'll stretch him out. And it's so valuable to be able to get multiple innings out of a guy out of the pen because when there is an off day or when there is a need for that bullpen to step up, you got a guy who's going to eat up a couple innings right there. You talk about the Brewers. You know who this was two years ago? This was Freddie Peralta. Yeah. Freddy Peralta came up three years ago as a big-time starting pitching prospect with an electric fastball and a good slider, but poor command. McGill has good command and no real third pitch. They kind of used him between 2019 and 2020 in this like de facto reliever starter role where he would come in and mop up for three innings at a time. Eventually got more confident. He threw four innings. He ended that season, 2020, kind of a smattering of five innings, but not so much. Coming into last season, he finally had developed a changeup. He had gotten accustomed to facing hitters one time each, maybe certain ones for two. Then he gets the third pitch, and now he's facing guys three times through the order, and he was a Cy Young candidate last year and looks like one of the better pitchers in the National League. Like, this is a way that the smart teams are bringing along their starting pitching prospects. I don't want any Mets fans out there to think that Tyler McGill has been relegated to a bullpen role, rather that he's being developed in a more, in a more, in a more I don't even know the word is, in a more concise and consistent way. I'm so happy you said that because I was just about to say, I think this is going to kind of be a new turn that we see in the development of pitching is that you're not going to stick a guy in AAA to start the year to develop him unless like he is really far away kind of thing. But if you have a guy that's close or a guy that can still be very effective at the major league level, you're now going to put him into the bullpen. You're going to let him get a couple innings and you're going to build him up to that starter role that you want, but against major league competition. Because as we know, the competition and getting that experience is extremely valuable. We've seen it with pitchers time and time again. You need to get them the innings at the major league level. It's hard to just come up and be dominant. And for a guy like McGill, I think this is going to be huge, huge for his development. Definitely. Something we talked about a lot last year was the major difference in skill level between AAA and the major leagues. Like, There's almost no comparison this day and age. It's like, And you saw a lot with AAA hitters who came up last season. Many of them struggled, but also range true for pitchers. And I think another guy we're going to see in a similar role this year, maybe once we see another injury or if McGill has done enough to get himself to prove that he can be the real starting pitcher that he, we know he is. Jose Budo, who pitched on Monday, made a spring debut for the Mets, is another guy who has a fastball with plenty of life, has one very good off-speed pitch, his changeup, and is working on a slider or a curveball to try and mix in and get him to that level. And he's a guy who, again, touching 96 miles an hour with a plus changeup, he can pitch two innings and pitch them very well. And he's a guy who I think will also excel in this type of role. Yeah, I want to give you a little pat on the back there, James, and even just the messed up boys in general, because when we started doing our minor league farm reports last year, we were just looking for guys who were just kind of coming out of nowhere, just had a little a, a good game here, there, or a good week. And Jose Budo started off very early in the year as one of the pitching names that we mentioned without really knowing too much about him. But as we've done more and more research and we've seen this guy's game develop over the past year or so, he's really come into a pitcher that can have an impact on this major league roster at some point this year. Definitely. And all we ever heard about Buda was the changeup, but watching videos from his start on Monday, depending on when you guys are listening to this, his fastball had serious life. The vertical movement on it was at the point where he is someone who could get major league hitters out probably today. And I do think he will start the season in AAA just based on how our depth lines up. But I would be shocked if Jose Budo doesn't give the Mets 60 pretty solid innings this season at a minimum. And he even becomes much more important after the Chris Bassett trade and losing Adam Aller, who is going to be one of those other swing men type in the upper minors, and JT Ginn, who was probably the Mets. He was the marriage of the, the most potential and the most developed Mets pitcher in the system. And I do think that there is a chance that Jose Budo's development was kind of an inclination for them that they could trade those two guys 
and feel okay. Yeah, no, Budo looked really, really good. I was super impressed with what I was able to see. Of course, there wasn't a lot of great video because there's still just this weird spring training thing that happens where some teams just do not broadcast their games. And especially if you're on the road, you do not broadcast the games. And the Mets didn't do that today with the Marlins. No, and the Marlins.com actually did broadcast the game. That's where I was catching it. And you just their zoom was ridiculous. Like you couldn't even see half of the field when the ball was put in play. But you know what you could see? The pitcher and the catcher and the batter at the plate. And with all of that involved, Jose Budo looked really good. Jose Budo did look really good. And then let's talk about the other guy that pitched today, too. Uh, Max Scherzer, uh, he's a freak. Five innings, 72 pitches in his first appearance of the spring. Like, do we expect anything less? But also, it is still shocking. I I couldn't even imagine when I saw him pitch the fifth inning today. I was like, what the fuck is he doing? Threw 72 pitches his first start of the spring. Who does that? He had a quality start in spring training. (laughs) Five innings, no quality start. Oh, okay. Quality Quality start start six. six. Yeah. And, of course, Mets fans were going crazy because he left the game losing one nothing. (laughs) <laughs> and the Mets were shut out in the spring training game. It's messed up. That's so messed up. That's not right. But again, spring training, everything with a great assault, and especially in a way spring training game, they really don't care about those. Those are get home as quick as possible. And Max Scherzer was trying to do his best with 72 pitches in five innings. It's like kind of fucked up that he did that. Like I really maybe think they should scale him back a little bit. Like if he, threw 75, I, if he threw 75 pitches first start of the year, I would have been like, all right, that's pretty good. He's going to be throwing 120 in April. I tend to believe whatever Max Scherzer thinks is right is going to be right. So if he's saying I'm throwing 70 pitches right now, who who's telling Max Scherzer no? It's not me. It's not you. I mean, truthfully, now with the universal DH, that saves a lot of pregame energy for Max Scherzer. Because whenever he pitched, he always took batting practice and he always did base running drills. That's an extra half hour that Scherzer has now. Twice a week, if not. And we've seen Scherzer bunt, too. Thank God we don't have to see that anymore. He hit himself in the face during BP and got a black eye, which made for one of the greatest, one, baseball gifts, just him hitting himself in the face, and two, also great pictures because he was pitching with the black eye like a psycho that he is, but... Man, even in a spring training game, I get jazzed up for Max Scherzer to pitch on the mound for the Mets. And that was today. Just was fun today, just seeing him in the Mets jersey, just striking out Marlins. Like, that's exactly where Max Scherzer should be. Felt right. It felt right. Like, oh, man, it happened. It's it's real. Max Scherzer's actually on the Mets, and he's going to pitch for us. This is crazy. Definitely. And then as we finish up this little pitching spring training wrap-up, we should talk about the one guy who did not look good for Mets spring training, and that was David Peterson who I thought very interestingly started the game that McGill came in in the fourth inning. Yes. I think that is oddly telling of where the Mets might see each of these guys, whether it be right or wrong. And it's funny because, again, something me and you have talked about, Peterson probably should also try and get into this McGill-type role that we're talking about, where they use him out of the pen for one, two, three innings. Like he, We talk about needing a left-handed reliever. Why couldn't it be Peterson? That might be his best fit right now. I've long thought that was his best fit because his fastball just doesn't seem to have enough velocity in a, in comparison with his off-speed pitches to be someone who I can think can get through a major league lineup three times. It really hasn't. But we have seen stints where David Peterson has been able to get up to 95 miles an hour. He has been able to use his slider on the back foot against right-handed uh, hitters. He has had some good life on that sinker with the bowling ball motion. He has had a changeup that has looked plus at times. He just This was his first appearance against any major league competition in what, eight months, and he looked pretty bad, but I don't know. I think that I, I don't think this is the last we're going to hear of David Peterson, but I do think that maybe we cannot look at him as like a former first-round pick anymore. We have to look at him as pitching depth. Yeah, like how are we going to be able to get the most value out of a guy like David Peterson instead of relying on him, which is kind of crazy to say that last year he was supposed to be one of our main starters, and now we've kind of relegated him to a different spot, but it doesn't mean things can't change. Again, he was still a first-round pick, so there's something there's something there. 
We just got to be able to get it out of David Peterson. And it also is so tough when you're as big as him because your mechanics have to be so clean. And we saw it yesterday, too. Like, command was just slightly off, and it led to a couple bombs. Yeah, a couple bombs. Paul Goldschmidt just worked like a comical walk against him where he just took a lot of pitches very close to the zone. Nothing was ever really close. The Cardinals are good. They have a very good top of the order. And it was, again, it it was to me interesting that Peterson was the guy who came in to start that game. And then they brought McGill in second. And I I don't know if I would necessarily agree with how the Mets are structuring those two. Yeah, no. Um, I think Peterson should probably get a similar role, like coming in as relief. That's what we should be looking at him for right now. Or even why had, why didn't he come in third? Like why do we want David Peterson to be facing Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt the second he's hitting a mound after an eight-month layoff? Like why can't he face like Lars Nupar and Juan Yepes? I mean, I, I'll tell you why, because he's, he's technically probably on the 40-man, or he is on the 40-man, and he's like, I, I want to get my golf clubs and head out when I'm done. I don't want to stick around for two and a half hours to pitch the eighth and the ninth inning. And I guess that's interesting, just thinking about organizational dynamics, because Peterson is that first-round pick who rose through the system relatively quickly, and the fact that he has gotten to the major leagues with the speed he has, that is a win for the organization. Like, I'll say yeah. that, sure. But McGill is like kind of the grinder. He's the scrapper. Maybe maybe we should like him in the underdog role more so. Yeah, no, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I also wanted to quickly mention another pitcher that the Mets had. Guy that we saw in the fall league, Colin Holderman, made an appearance today. One inning, three strikeouts. Granted, again, it's the Marlins in the ninth inning of, or eighth inning or whatever it was. So everything's with a grain of salt. But that's the competition he's probably going to be facing in the minors. That's the similar lineup. And he kind of diced him, and he's got some good stuff. Someone who I want every Met fan to keep an eye out for, not necessarily as a starter of the future, but a guy who maybe, if there's some injuries in the bullpen, as we always know that happens, a guy who could get called up and actually has legit stuff, because he touches like 98-99, I think, with the fastball. Yeah, he did He did sit 98-99 today, and Mets are going to need to pull probably a couple of relievers out of their asses here, like every team will in, over the course of a major league season. And if Holderman starts the year in the upper minors, there's no stopping him from getting to the majors. Yep, so just some quick pitching stuff to talk about there. Big, th- big notes, though, Tyler McGill and, of course, our boy Jose Budo looking very, very sharp. All great positive signs for the Mets going into the regular season and going into the rest of spring training because we still have, like you said, 18 days left. Yeah, but even though the first games have been played, I just want to get on the fast track and get right to the fucking season. I know, I'm so excited. Like, yeah. I, we're talking about Tyler McGill in a stretch roll, and I can't wait to see it on, like, a, a Thursday afternoon game where he comes in and pitches three innings, and then all of a sudden it's May, Lugo, Diaz, game over. Fuck, I'm so excited. Oh, God. I just I can't even believe we've gotten to this point with baseball. I was so scared about baseball. I was sad for a while. And it even feels like we haven't even spoken that much like since all this stuff has gotten crazy because we're still doing the once a week. And it's just like, there's so much shit. I know. Like I was like, man, it almost feels like a week off in between episodes is like too long because there's so much stuff happening. Maybe maybe now as spring training games go, we'll, we'll see and see if we can sprinkle in a couple episodes here and there. Of course, we're still going to do the multi-episodes a week when the regular season comes around because a ton more to talk about. But spring training, I think especially with the huge lack of baseball that we had for the 100 days, it, it feels more exciting and more important than it ever has. And maybe that's also a little bit of a curse too, because at the end of the day, it is spring training and everything has to be taken with a grain of salt. I like to think of spring training as when positive things happen, applaud them. When bad things happen, say, ah, it's spring training. You remember last year when Lindor hit, what, like six home runs in the spring? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was that feels like a long time ago. Feels like a really long time ago. And uh, let's, let's talk about the hitting, because the hitting, as, as good as we felt about the pitching, the hitting's a little scary, but... Let's start off with the positive. Let's start off with the positive, and that's Dom Smith, who might be back. And we found out some really, really key information, which gives a ton of insight, and it makes so much sense as to why he was such ass last year. Yeah, and the, that was the fact that he played all of last season with a partially torn labrum in his shoulder. 
on top of a, of a bum wrist he had for most of the year and a groin injury he said he picked up in the second half. So Dom basically played the entire season last year at not 100%, which he did say that that's not an excuse and I really should have played better, but it does make a lot of sense the fact that we've seen basically three different Dominic Smiths over the last three Major League Baseball seasons. Yeah, I mean, like, think about all the complaints we had last year or all the, or all the critiques. It was that Dom's just not really hitting the ball with oomph. There's nothing really behind it. Like, he hits it, it's just a weak pop-up again. And even some of his pitch selection, which I'm going to let you talk about because you read the article and everything, but even his pitch selection was a little bit off, and now it makes a little bit sense because, I mean, playing with a partially torn labrum as a hitter has to be extremely difficult, and it makes sense why the power seemed to just be zapped away. I know we also lost the bouncy baseballs, but... Dom still hit well in 2020. Like, it just kind of came out of nowhere. He hit very well in 2020. He was one of the best hitters in the major leagues in 2020. And you looked at the side-by-side of his swings, and you saw that he was following through with two hands last year separately from one, and one being in 2020 when he was hitting the ball harder. I don't exactly know the physics of hitting enough to know why that would make him hit the ball less, but I just do know that when you're hit, not swinging the way you normally swing, you seem to be uncomfortable. And it was clear Dom Smith was uncomfortable. And specifically, he said that all this lack of comfort led to his horrible pitch selection. We talked a lot last year about the run value for his pitches in the heart of the zone, and that he was one of the worst hitters in all of baseball for pitches in the heart of the zone, which is not a place you're going to be if you're ever going to be a good hitter. And he said, really, once he lost the labrum and the strength in his bottom arm, when he was losing power, he felt like he had to sell out more for more powerful swings, similar to like MLB The Show eight years ago, when you used to be able to hit the power swing, and there was less of a chance you made contact with the square button. But when that happened, he started to just kind of sell out for power and had to start a swing earlier. That was because it says groin was an issue. He had trouble igniting his lower half when he would swing. So he would basically just play the guessing game, thought he had a pitch wherever it could be, take a monster hack at it. When it hit, it hit, but a lot of times it didn't. That's why he sucks so bad. So we're hoping that maybe this year Dom can get back to, you know, sitting back the way he used to and reacting, recognizing pitches. Because that 2020 season, he was a monster against breaking balls, one of the best hitters in baseball against breaking balls. So we hope that that Dom Smith can come back. Yeah, he had like more doubles in the short 2020 season. Than I feel like he had extra base hits all of last year, and he played a lot last year. There was definitely a struggle there, and it's funny too that you talk about the pitch recognition and selling out because I remember us even talking about it. Like we were like Dom's 3-0 pitches, like he's just like I'm swinging 3-0, which is like typically not the approach that you have. And we were so confused. We're like, what is the reasoning behind that? Seems like we have our answer. And Dom also had so many of those swings last year. He almost like corkscrewed his body, and you'd see like the little helmet like fall over his face. He would helicopter above his head. They're not good hitting mechanics. And it's almost like shame on the Mets for letting him play almost 150 games last year, letting him get to like 500 plate appearances, whatever it was, because he clearly wasn't right. But I guess the next options were so bad because the Mets' upper minors depth really uh, evaporated very quickly last year, which is another issue we're going to get to later. But I do hope that we can get a powerful Dom Smith because having that left-handed bat as an everyday DH or being able to basically split time at first base with Pete, just having another lefty in the lineup because most of the righties we're going to play against could be monumentally important for the way this lineup looks right now. And he put his money where his mouth is. He had two home runs off Max Scherzer in an inter-squad game, which that's glorified practice, but it still happened. It still did exist. One of them looked kind of like a cheapo, but it still went over the fence. Like, fuck it. And he hit another home run the first spring training game, and then he hit a triple. Like, there seems to be some power there. Again, Luis Guillorme also hit a home run that day, so maybe the wind was blowing out. I don't know what was going on. We also faced Josiah Gray, who is just the king of giving up home runs. We'll learn about that more this year as we play the Nationals a lot. And there was no baseball savant data for this game, so that exit velocity could have been anything. But it's something. It's positive. Yeah, I was about to say, like, Dom could be a game changer for this lineup. We talked about all offseason, Schwarber, a nice left-handed bat to be the DH. 
felt really, really good. And one of the reasons was because Dom's game took a huge step back. But learning this information and then seeing that it looks like there's a different Dom Smith, or at least the Dom Smith of old, it's getting me a little excited here. It's making me think that Dom Smith might have, uh, we might have sold out on Dom Smith a little bit early. Granted, we didn't have all the information. I think if we had all the information and had known he was playing with a torn labrum and groin and all this stuff, probably a little different narrative from everybody in Mets world. But if Dom is healthy and can go back to even just like 80% of the player he was in 2020, 2019, that does a massive, massive addition to the New York Mets lineup. It's huge. It does a massive addition, huh? Good English. Yeah, it does a massive addition. I don't know where I was going with that when I said does. I was like, does a whole lot, but then I wanted to say massive. So the English was not great. That's fine. We're talking about spring training. We're talking about baseball. The, the data is important, more so than what we're talking about. And yes. Dom could be a big deal because we have another lefty who's going to be in this lineup seemingly a lot who it's really hard to see how they're going to fit in as Robinson Cano. And it does. this makes me feel like we haven't spoken in a long time because we haven't talked since his weird – corny like scripted press conference about apologizing kind of air quotes yeah. for a steroid use and even despite all of that when the Mets played a starters lineup on Saturday in spring training Cano was the DH and batting fifth ahead of Dom Smith and ahead of JD Davis who both played the field with the backups the day before when all that they both went off so I it's really hard for me to see right now how he isn't a large part of this team, unless he basically plays himself out of the role, which is scary. Yeah, I, I know, I don't remember when I heard it or where I saw it, but I, I believe that Buck talked about his role on the team, and he was talking about McNeil and Dom as well, and he brought up Dom playing the outfield, which is just crazy. That yeah, should be fine. thrown out the window. But anyway, back to Robinson Cano. He brought up that Cano is basically going to be their DH. He's basically going to play at that position, and he will play a little bit second base because you just have to give guys some days off. you got to make some you know, moves here and there, and there will be injuries. People are going to miss games. But it looks like Robinson Cano is going to be slotted in right now against right-handed pitchers as our DH. Yes, and that's probably directly ahead of Dom Smith. So that's going to be a battle Mets fans should be watching this spring. That seems like Dom might be getting a leg up. Also because Buck Showalter had some interesting things to say. I don't think that he—I uh, don't think he, I wouldn't call them choice words for Robinson Cano, but definitely he said some things that would make me think that he, he respects him but he just might not entirely trust him. And this one quote really drove that home, where he said, talking to Robbie, the thing he felt the worst about was not being there for the club or the team. I choose to believe that. Have I sat down and said, why'd you do it? What drove you to it? No, I have some curiosity, but now is not the time. So it's clear that Buck Showalter hasn't like fully accepted Robinson Cano back, but he does realize that this is a team. And he said later on, it's conducive for our club to move on. It's conducive for our club to move on. We have not moved on. Not we, we don't want to move on. If we want to be the best Mets team possible, we have to move on, and we have to see what Robinson Cano can give us. Yeah, I was going to say, I think the move on is more in terms of, like, talk about all this steroid stuff, talk about the narrative. Let's see what he does. If he can't play, then we make a decision. But right now, Robinson Cano is a part of this team. He's a, a big part of this team, per se, again, with air quotes. But he's going to be there probably for 100, 120 games right now if everything's healthy and everything's good. I also do want to say that Buck in the game that was on SNY against the Cardinals, did talk about that he did love having Robbie around all the guys and that he was really impressed with how he interacts with everybody and he keeps everybody loose. He talked about him and E.E. Eduardo Escobar just being two really, really awesome guys to have around and that they have a lot of knowledge. They want to help all the players. They want to talk with guys. They're baseball dudes. They love what they do. So at the absolute worst, it seems like Cano's like a great guy to have around the clubhouse, have around the bench, almost maybe a little bit of old Curtis Granderson role-ish although Curtis Granderson was way better than Robinson Cano is right now. But I like that 
we can have kind of this older mentor around that also is still technically a player. And it would be great if he could do some stuff at the plate as well. That would be the real, you know, icing on the cake. That's all good and well, but that's only will, is going to play if he's actually producing. Because as we talked about yeah. ad nauseum, this Mets roster is a little bit snug right now at the bottom with guys who don't really do that many helpful things as in, and also many different things than the other guys do. And Cano can be good. Like Buck in that in that line of quotes also said that this guy's gonna be able to hit the ball when he's fifty, which is probably true. Probably yeah. Cano's bat to ball skills will never go away. He, people really hilariously forget that in the short two thousand twenty season he hit three sixteen with a five forty four slugging. So like if he can do something similar to that over a smaller window, like he is going to be the left handed batter that's gonna be getting most of the DH reps against righties. And that is going to be monumentally important for this team, especially as we seem to be maybe lacking power and lacking some depth in certain parts of the roster. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, you got to remember, of course, to that 2020 season, he was was juicing a bit, so we got the healthiest Robinson For Cano sure. we've seen in a yeah. while. And Gary made sure everybody knew that. Gary, I don't think, is very happy with Robinson Cano, but he's also a Mets fan, so it makes sense. They were talking about it a lot. He was like, you know, they are called performance-enhancing drugs for a reason because they enhance your performance, which it's not always necessarily true. But for a guy like Robinson Cano who struggled with probably feeling 100%, it definitely helped him out a lot in that 2020 season. So if we could just get a little bit of that, I think we'd be happy. Also, it should be noted that one of the reporters, I forget who, so I'm sorry for not giving someone credit, asked Cano pretty bluntly, Can you guarantee, are you going to guarantee you're not going to test positive again? And Cano responded, that's why I'm here as a man to give you guys an apology. It was tough for me this past year. That's not that's not a yes. And also what's interesting too is about the steroid he got caught with is like one of the old steroids. And they thought Stand that basically, yeah, it was it was masking it and they thought they were gonna be able to get away with it. So like there's no world where Robinson can was still doing a little something and gets caught. I mean, that wouldn't be the worst case scenario. It would be closer to the best. That would be a, that'd be a lifetime ban. We get next year's contract right back. <laughs> Twenty million dollars we could spend. That Steve Cohen tax looks a lot less daunting. <laughs> I wish Trevor Story wouldn't have signed, but if that would have happened eventually, but you know, it's something. It's something to keep an eye on because I don't. I, I'm not. I don't know. I'm treating Ramsey Cano now like like a really bad ex girlfriend that you've led <laughs> to your life, and like I'm not going to trust you. But it's like if we could do some nice things, and we'll see what happens. But like eventually, I'm waiting for you to let me down again. We could have some fun, but at the end yeah. of the day, you know, it's it's short lived. If you want to be a designated hitter against right handed pitchers and you're going to hit well from the left side, sure, I'll be happy to have you. But, like, we'll, we're going to wait for trust. Yes, we, we got to gain that trust back before we really fully give it to Robinson Cano. Another thing we have to watch this entire season, I, I, I'm not completely sold, especially with what we saw in, like, the Winter League. It didn't really hit the ball particularly hard or for any sort of power. That's the thing. If he's going to be a singles hitter, that does us no good. <laughs> No, singles hitter who can't play defense, we can get one of those for free. Literally anywhere, anywhere. Pull someone up from the minor. Put Daniel Polka, give him a shot. I want to talk about him a little bit because he's looked a little bit impressive too in the in the spring so far in these three games. He had a double yesterday off the wall. The wind was blowing in against the Cardinals, but he smoked the ball. This dude's an absolute unit, and I feel like he's a really interesting person to kind of having the minors waiting if there is some sort of injury or or lapse in the lineup that we do need. He's like Matt Adams-ish, I feel like. He's always been a stack cast god between barrels and exit velocity. Polka is a guy who's going to hit the ball 112, 113, 114 miles an hour regularly. He's going to miss the ball a lot. He's going to strike out, but that's kind of part of the course of Daniel Polka. And him, along with a big-time prospect who we've talked about a lot, Mark Vientos, are definitely going to be near this designated hitter mix if this Dom renaissance is Fugazi, and if Robinson Cano can't hit the ball. J.D. Davis, I think, is the guy I'm most confident in, ironically, and he's the one who hasn't really, hasn't been any notable news about J.D. Davis right now. He's certainly working with the second team, but he, him, Polka, and Vientos simply probably hit the ball the hardest from this group, with Dom being the wild card and Cano being the ugly stepchild. 
Yes. No, there's there's a lot of little interesting guys here. I think it's also worth mentioning that Nick Plummer. Yes. Who too. might have a little bit more of a role than we thought early on in the season here with some news that we're going to talk about later. He's also looking really solid, and he was a guy that was in the Cardinals organization, so you know he's a ball player. The Cardinals don't really mess around with guys who, don't, who aren't that good, and uh, he looks solid. When the Cardinals cut an outfielder, everybody should be aware because most of the outfielders that they get rid of turn into stars between Rosarena, Tommy Pham, um, last, uh, Adoles Garcia. Like, Cardinals cut an outfielder. He can really smoke the ball. And I hope, I'm hoping Nick Palmer is the same. But now with the news they just alluded to that Starling Marte has a bit of a strain in his oblique, which is something that Starling Marte has dealt with in the past. It's also something that's really scary for someone in their mid-30s. There's a good chance that that pushes Jeff McNeil to regular outfield reps early in the season which makes this whole Robinson Cano thing much more interesting because there might be a gap at second base. But if not McNeil going to the outfield, we are going to have to have to dip into this strange and not that great outfield depth we have between Nick Plummer, Khalil Lee, and the new signed Travis Jankowski. And that's going to create a lineup that is really interestingly not that great, which we saw on Saturday when the Mets played their starters in air quotes for the spring game. It started Nimmo, Lindor, McNeil, Alonzo, and then the outfield in that game was Kanha, Nimmo, Jankowski. So somehow Jankowski was getting the reps with the starters ahead of Khalili and Nick Plummer, which, again, for most Mets fans, that's basically a who I don't care at all about the difference between those three guys. But it's weird that he got the first shot in my eyes. Yeah, uh, I mean, he's a guy who's got great defense. Jankowski can play great defense. He's a freak athlete. And if you get anything out of the plate, it's a little bit of a positive. But he was a former first-round pick. We like to yeah. talk about that. When something that me and you have spoke about a lot, too, is just like we'd love the Mets to take some flyers on some interesting players. Not Albert Almora, who doesn't really do anything particularly well besides, like, crashing Who I think is also a former first-round pick, as you talk out of the side of your mouth. Yeah, but whatever. Who cares? I don't care about <laughs> Albert Almora. But Travis Jankowski is at least really fast. Like, yes, he is fast. That's cool. Daniel Polka hits the ball really hard. Really Nick hard. Plummer, all around, solid-looking player right now. Like I like that we're not sh- really scraping the bargain bit or the bottom of the barrel for guys that are on their way out of Major League Baseball. It feels like there's a place for all these guys on the team. Hopefully, it doesn't have to be the Mets right now, but with the starting Marte injury, it might be sooner than we think. And again, I think we have to talk about the Marte injury a little bit more, too, because in the, is it called an interview? Or when he was at his locker in spring training, he was getting a lot of questions about it. And they were talking about doing x-rays in this. And they're like, is it an oblique? He's like, well, we thought it was an oblique, but there was some other stuff on there. And they're like, well, what what, uh, what was it? And he's like, it was some other stuff. I don't like that. I don't like that one bit. That's terrifying. I, I'm, mm, I won't say, I won't say, but all of us Mets fans, we are thinking the exact same thing. And don't you dare fucking say mm-hmm. it to anybody. But it's getting eerily similar to something we will not mention. Yeah, and again, this lineup looks much less long when he's not in it because it goes, I started it before, Nimmo, Lindor, McNeil, Alonzo, which I think McNeil before Alonzo is kind of sketchy, but it does make sense they want to separate the lefties here, which I would just probably do that in a different way. But again, Nimmo, Lindor, McNeil, Alonzo, Cano, Escobar, Canna, McCann, Jankowski. That's not a very fear-inducing lineup. No, that is not a lineup that people are scared of. And I think that's something we have to talk about, too, is that there's a big narrative going around Mets fans that this Mets lineup is not very good, that they need bats, that we are we had a lackluster offseason, which I'm ready to nip that in the bud right now. Stop it. Everybody stop it. Ridiculous. Nonsense. This Mets had a great offseason. It's not the freaking Texas Rangers signing Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager, but we had one of the better offseasons in all of baseball. We need to We need to get that out of here right now. We definitely do, but I am seeing the sentiment. When we see this lineup without Starling Marte, that there could be room for another hitter. And, of course, that hitter very well could be either Dominic Smith or J.D. Davis if 
you can move McNeil to an outfield spot, get Jankowski on the bench where he probably he's more fit as a bench role player who can run a little bit, play some defense. That would lengthen this a lot, but if they are going to commit to McNeil never playing the outfield again, which I think could be wrong, or if they're going to commit to Robinson Cano just never going to the Keystone, which might be right, it seems like this team, this roster just might need a guy. I just don't know who that guy is. <laughs> I'm going to throw out a name, Michael Conforto. It's making more and more sense every day, especially if Marte is hurt. And I think that will, the Mets moves over the next couple weeks here with Marte, you know, rehabbing this oblique injury. He says he's going to be fine for opening day. He says he's going to catch up on at-bats the last week of spring training, which is like, dude, that's next week. Like, that's it's really not that long uh, or yeah. far away. You got to see what the Mets do here in terms of moves. You got to see what they do in terms of playing these guys like Nick Plummer and Khalili and Travis Jankowski and see what they're doing with them because that could also tell you a lot of insight about what's going on with Starling Marte and if he's going to actually be ready for opening day. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to shout out um, a fancy baseball writer who recently just got a gig with The Athletic. His name is Mike Kurland on Twitter, and he is the king of spring training lineups and spring training player usage. That's where I'm getting all the spring training lineups. He does it incredibly. He has like this public like 14-tab Google Sheet. That's NLAL, and it goes by division. And you can see day by day every single team's lineups. You can see the way they delineate between the A lineup and the B lineup. And you clearly see right now the Mets B lineup. You have J.D. Davis hitting second, playing third, and Dom Smith hitting third, playing first. And Khalil Lee is consistently in that B lineup too with Nick Plummer and Daniel Palka. But also Jake Mangum, who kind of he's, he's kind of like going to be Travis, Travis Jankowski too. But it's maybe just the way timing worked with when they signed Jankowski that he just fit better with this A team rather than the other guys. Or maybe they want to make sure that Plummer and Khalil Lee are getting as many outfield reps as possible and hitting maybe relatively a little bit higher in their respective orders than Jankowski is. But if one of those guys doesn't step up and contribute very much on this team, it seems like we're going to have a very strange bottom of the roster from the hitting side when the season begins. If Marte's on the I.L. Yeah, if Marte's on the I.L. That's the big if. If Marte is on the I.L. There's a world where he's just completely fine and ready for opening day, and we just got worried about absolutely nothing. But like you said, a muscle injury, oblique, something he's dealt with for a guy who's getting older while he is in incredible shape. We know that doesn't really matter. Guys in incredible shape get hurt all the time. The incredible shape is almost worse because you're a little bit tighter. All the muscles are a little bit bigger. It's You've seen that a lot on the other side of the city here with Judge and Stanton where it just things are easier to get pulled. Too big for baseball. Even though I'm not, sorry, Mate is not. That guy's cut up. He looks like a he looks like an old-school warrior. The picture of him on the horse is just yeah. outlandish. Yeah, and this, this is all probably just rearing its ugly heads into our just – uh, still, you know, very pessimistic minds from a lifetime Mets fandom because literally the rest of the NL East has made massive moves over the last week since we last talked to you guys. The Braves made major additions to their bullpen with Kenley Jansen and Colin McHugh. The Phillies are just buying into massive power with no defense with uh, Nick Castellanos joining Kyle Schwarber as my, my buddy Phillies fan is uh, pumping his fist in the background of this video. Jorge Soler went to the Marlins, another big power bat who's going to get probably swallowed up by the ballpark. Nelson Cruz hilariously is a Washington National, which... If you had to give me 27 guesses for where Nelson Cruz is going to sign, I probably wouldn't have said the Nationals. There's a lot of shit going on in this division. This is going to be a hotly contested division, and there's a lot of activity here, and it seems like it's going to be a real dogfight all season long. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say this. I still think there are tiers to this division. I think you have the Mets and Braves, who I think are definitely still the top tier, even though the Phillies went out and grabbed two really good bats in Schwarber and Castellanos, and they will both hit extremely well in Philadelphia at that band box. But they're, we talked about the depth with the Mets being a little bit of an issue. The Phillies legitimately have nobody outside of their like eight good players, and then that's it. They got nothing else. So I'm not particularly worried about the Phillies yet. I think they're right below the Mets. 
And then you got the Marlins just right in that same kind of category because the Marlins are much improved. The pitching is going to be disgusting. So if they get any sort of offense, they're going to be scary. They're not going to be a layover team, pushover anymore. The Marlins are going to be a pain in our ass this year. I can guarantee that. And then the Nationals still stink. But they do have Juan Soto who can just win a game for you. And um, and Josh Bell and Nelson Cruz, they suddenly have a good middle of the order. Like That's yeah. at least something to be aware of. And it's weird that every single team in this division, if you look at Vegas' over-unders, will probably do some some Vegas stuff in the next coming weeks here with the Messed Up podcast. No team is projected for less than 70 wins. That's, that's a division where you don't have any pushovers. And most of the divisions in baseball have at least one pushover. Yeah, no, it's going to be a bit of a, a clogged-up NL East. The Braves, I think, are still the scariest team. I still think, as we've been saying all year, or at least I have, can't win the NL East without beating the Braves. And they got definitely a little bit better with that bullpen. McHugh, I think, is almost more so the better addition than Jansen. Jansen, I still think, is very good. But McHugh's going to be that that sneaky guy who we mentioned can go a couple innings, like we mentioned with McGill. Yeah. Like He's going to be huge. They did that with Josh Tomlin, who does not nearly have the stuff like Colin McHugh. So that's an automatic upgrade. Jansen's also very important to that Braves bullpen because a lot of their better pitchers are left-handed. And the fact that now they can throw a righty into there to offset a little bit of that lefty uh, that lefty heavy bullpen, just they have a lot of options at the end of games. It's gonna be it's gonna be scary. Even though I think Jansen, like I've said before, he might he's definitely on the way down, and it's gonna be interesting to see what he looks like without the sticky stuff. But he's better than Will Smith. I don't know if he's better than Tyler Matzik or even AJ Minter if he could pitch to his fullest potential. But they just have a very strong. They went adding one guy at the back of that bullpen took it from mid to like pretty good. Yeah, no, they they have a good arsenal of pitchers. Kind of like the Mets. Mets have a good bullpen too. Like I think that's a great bullpen. I'm not saying yeah. anything bad about the Mets bullpen. We're not yeah. we're not saying they're good and we're bad. We're, no, no. we're we're good. They're good. Phillies are bad. Yes, Phillies are bad. <laughs> Phillies bullpen is still bad, which is Phil- thank God saving grace. They is going to be. We're going to lose some games to the Phillies power. Like Nick Castellanos or Carl Schwarber is going to just take over games against us, and that's going to suck. But we're going to have a great game against the Phillies probably in May or June, where we're going to be losing by four in the sixth, and either Familia or Coonrod or Brogdon or. or uh, who they signed another Alvarado reliever. or Alvarado? He, there was another reliever they signed, mid-level reliever. Familia, who? Brad Hand. Brad Hand. That was Brad. It. Oh, yeah. That's oh my god! Saying. I like, can't Familia believe... or Brad Hand are going to come in the game, and then we're going to hit the ground ball to Alec Bohm. He's going to throw it over Reese Hoskins' head, and we're going to hit a fly ball to Nick Castellanos. He's going to misplay it off a hob, and we're going to like score five runs without doing anything good. So that's going to happen. In addition to. Kyle Schwarber definitely hitting a tank off Edwin Diaz and people losing their minds. Oh, yeah. No, there's going to be a couple games where the Phillies beat us by like 14 runs. There's no doubt. But there is also going to be a lot of games that we beat them because they don't actually know how to play baseball outside of hitting home runs. Yeah, and two of their pitchers pitching really well as long as Zach Wheeler is healthy, which I don't want to root for anybody's lack of health. But if Zach Wheeler isn't healthy, the Phillies are going to struggle to win 80 games again. Wouldn't be the worst thing if you no missed offense. a couple starts. No, no. I mean, come on. I want the guy to be healthy. We have a long career ahead of him. I want, I want Zach Wheeler to pitch well into his 40s. This, this, the, this April and May are not important. Not important at all. He can miss a couple starts in April and May, and we'll see you in June, and then he's, you're slowing down. You're throwing 70 pitches in June, and then comes into 100 in July. It's, that's fine. That sounds good to fine. me. Fine. Ramp him up. Uh, what's, what's the word? Uh, not healthily. Ramp gradually. Him up in, gradually. Ramp him up gradually. Don't, don't, let, don't let the season get away from you, Philadelphia. And all the Mets fans out there, don't, don't be scared of this, this Phillies team. They're good. But they're, they're more of an 85-87 win team. I think this Mets roster right now is more of an 89-92 win team, similar to the Braves. I think yeah. we are, like you said, a tier ahead of them, but they are within striking distance. Without a doubt. And they, they, they might not be done. They can still make some moves here and there, and they can still have yeah. a couple guys come up. Like, there's a lot to go on. This Major League Baseball season is extremely long, as we know as Mets fans. It's not one in June. It's not one in July. It matters what happens at the end of September. And right now, 
the Mets are in a good position. They're not in the best position, but they're definitely in a good position. This team is better than they were last year, and you're foolish to think if they're not. They are going to compete for the National League East title. They're going to compete for a playoff spot. They're going to be one of the better teams in the National League as long as everything stays healthy and good. Yes, as long as everything stays healthy and good. And we know it won't, but it's about having the depth to get us through when it doesn't go well. And we, I think, have that in a little bit more than most teams this division. The Braves have just so many baseball players. It's a little scary. But I think, I think the Mets are in a good spot. And they're, them and the Braves actually have basically the exact same projections everywhere. Las Vegas, baseball prospectus, fan graphs, neck and neck. It's going to be a very fun season, us versus them. I will say, from a fan perspective, the games are going to be electric. City Field, we're going to have like four really, really competitive teams going up against the Mets like every week between the Phillies, Braves, and the Marlins are at three. My bad. Three teams. Nationals, they'll be a pain in our ass, and Lane Thomas will do something, or Andrew Stevenson will go like four for four one game. But Lane Thomas might not be that bad. Lane Thomas is kind of a good little ball player. I've been on Lane Thomas for a while. I think I think he's pretty solid. And then they also have Juan Soto. Can't forget him. Yeah, I, I, the National, it's going to just be a pesky division, but you have to just have solace in the fact that every team is playing all of these games. Like we're all going to play the Reds the same amount of times. We're all playing the Pirates the same amount of times. We're all playing the Rockies, Diamondbacks the same amount of times. You just have to win these games in division. That kind of got away from the Mets at the end of last season. You got to win these games in the division. Yep, and I think they're in a good spot. Again, well, I'm excited to see Bassett pitch. I think he's coming up later this week. DeGrom, mm-hmm. I think, pitches technically tomorrow, right? He had that great ball session the other day. Just put him in bubble wrap. We'll see him later. <laughs> see you later. You'll be ready for opening day. Don't care. There's a lot more to keep an eye out for. Narratives, players, performances. Of course, you guys know we're going to keep you up to date with everything here on the Messed Up Podcast. I think that's pretty much it, though, for this episode, right, James? I'm good. Yeah, hit the whole rundown. All right, we'll wrap it up here. So if you guys are listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen, drop us a five-star rating, drop us a review, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Messed Up Podcast, as well as follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at Messed Up. Give James a follow at Jeter Had No Range, me at Giraffe Mark with a C. And that's going to be it for episode number 79 of the Messed Up Podcast. Thank you guys for listening and watching, and we'll see you next time. Peace out. Peace out, guys. See you next time.